And we are turning to our consideration of the prophet of hope, Zechariah, in the second chapter tonight. This is a, um, we're picking up in, in Zechariah's night visions. This is his third vision. And it's all about the city of God. So that's what we are learning about tonight. That's our discussion this evening. Uh, what we can expect uh, from that city, what it will be like. Zechariah chapter 2. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus said the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come, and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord on that day, and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the holy land, and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. The grass withers, the flower fades. This is the word of our Lord, and it stands forever. In Zechariah's first night vision, he was assured that God was going to restore the people of Jerusalem, who at that moment, when he received that vision, historically, they were standing in the midst of the ruin of that very city, uh, with the... um, the evidence, the signs of destruction all about them. And God was speaking about that place. No, this will be restored. It will be rebuilt. Verse 16 of chapter 1. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. And the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. And now we come to this third night vision and... That's exactly what's taking place. I lifted my eyes, Zechariah says, and behold, a man with a measuring line. The identity of this measurer is, is somewhat obscure. We're not exactly sure who it is. Scholars uh, debate that point. It doesn't really matter um, if this is an angel or, um, or, or whatever. What, what matters is the purpose of this 
individual who has the measuring line. Uh, what matters is what he represents, and that is that the work is beginning. The work is beginning. God promised that his city would be rebuilt, and now Zechariah is seeing that very thing happening. He sees the man with the measuring line. It's the, the contractor in the very early stages of a project going to the work site, uh, getting measurements so that uh, he knows how much material is needed to complete the work. And, and it's probably hard for us to imagine just, um, just how wonderful this would have been for Zechariah to see this vision, uh, this man with, with the measuring line. Um, you know, if we could try to put it in some kind of way that we can understand, often uh, city workers are either justly or unjustly known for being slow, or at least, you know, when you need them, they're slow. The, the, uh, the power line goes down or the water main breaks. Uh, whatever it is, these setbacks happen, and, and it's like we count the minutes uh, waiting for somebody from the city to come and to, to fix things. And as you're you know, staring out your window and you finally see the letter truck kind of pull up outside your house or at the corner, starting to get work done, it makes you want to cheer. That's what Zechariah is seeing here. The work is actually being undertaken. Uh, not only has he been given a promise that Jerusalem will be rebuilt, but he gets a glimpse of that work beginning. And it's not by his fellow Israelites uh, who had all but given up on the project at this point. It, it's by this divine and mysterious measurer, and he will see that the work gets done. But just then, just as he sees this man with the measuring line, then another angel shows up in this vision, running towards the scene, kind of waving his hand, saying, no, stop, stop, tell him to put the, the ruler down. Well, why? Well, because actually this new city isn't going to have any walls at all. That doesn't necessarily sound like a good thing, does it? Um, were Zechariah's hopes brought up only to be dashed seconds later? Uh, you know, put the tools away, we're actually not going to build anything. That's not what's happening here. It's not that the measuring line isn't needed. It's actually that it's not big enough. And it never could be. It never will be. The plans for this new city defy all human expectation and human measurement and no human tools could be put to work to construct it. That's why the word from the angel is, Jerusalem shall be inhabited, this is verse 4, as villages without walls. Why? Because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. Zechariah is actually receiving a double dose of good news here. The first bit of good news is that indeed Jerusalem will be rebuilt, but then the second bit of good news is that it would be to such an extent... Uh, that, that human measurement can't even capture it. The city will be so massive, they don't have numbers for it. It will be so large because of the multitude that God has gathered into it. So large, it cannot be quantified, it cannot be measured, it cannot be contained. And so, that's why there will be no walls, because it can't be contained. It points us forward to the hope of heaven as John sees it in Revelation Chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, John's given a vision there of this new city as well. He looks and he beholds a great multitude that nobody can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, 
All singing with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. Uh, A multitude that cannot be measured. A city without walls. And this measureless city is a reflection of the measureless love of God, isn't it? The distance from heaven to the grave that Jesus traversed for us is incalculable. What he went through, how far he traveled from the heights of glory to the, to the depths of hell, no man could measure. Only God. Only God. And John, uh, John's first epistle he, he says, what kind of love is this? See what kind of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. It, it's actually a, a question without an answer. What kind of love is this? And, and John, he, he can't answer that question. What, what, what type of love, where does it come from in, in the Greek that's, that's that... That word actually has connotation with, uh, you know, like a a providence or a a place of origination. From whence is this love? Where does it come from? It's totally foreign to us. That's true. Because it's from outside of this world. It originates in the heart of God himself. In terms of degree and perfection, nothing else in this world can hold a candle to it. God acts in ways that are counterintuitive to us, ways that are actually repulsive to us by nature. By nature, left to our sinful selves, we would echo the sentiment of the senior demon Screwtape writing to his understudy, uh, Wormwood, when he incredulously remarks that that enemy, God has a curious fantasy of making all these disgusting little human vermin into sons. See what kind of love the Father has bestowed upon us. What love is this that would make us sons of God? How could we measure it? We can't. The love of God that would would make a single sinner a son is unfathomable, is immeasurable. Just just one sinner into a son. We, We can't, we can't. Imagine that. And yet what we're told in Zechariah and what we're told in uh, Revelation by John is that he just doesn't do that for a single sinner, but for all his elect. And that is a multitude that cannot be measured either. This immeasurable love that God has for one sinner, he actually has for a countless host for you and for me. An eternal, everlasting love. That's what he has showed to me, to Jonathan. And yet somehow he still has enough to show the rest of you. It's amazing. He shows it. He continues to show it. He forever will show infinite love to a multitude beyond measure. Could we with ink the oceans fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every tree on earth a quill? And every man a scribe by trade to write the God of the love of God above would drain the oceans dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. That's the love of God. And it's reflected in this vision that Zechariah has of a city without walls. A city without walls, but is 
the city where we're headed, is it safe? Walls represent safety, obviously. So is it a safe thing to have a city without walls? Well, the Lord anticipates that concern, and his angel communicates to Zechariah this word from God himself, and I, verse 5, and I will be to her a wall of fire all around. That's what the Lord declares. I will be the wall. I will be the glory in her midst. God's fiery glory, his, his splendor, uh, the splendor of his own presence will be what surrounds and protects the city, making it safer than any walled structure ever could be. Walls crumble. Cities fall. Just ask the citizens of, of Jericho. That's, that's, it's not a sure thing. Just because you have a wall that you'll be safe. But what makes the city of God impenetrable is that God is its mighty fortress. He is the bulwark that is never failing. Now, the imagery of, of this fiery wall maybe harkens back to the very first city that God made, Eden. And he protects that city from sin, ever entering it again when he casts Adam and Eve out east of Eden. And he sets there at the entrance of the city uh, an angel with a fiery flaming sword wielding it every which way. This wall of fire it creates to keep evil out. God's city is safe because of his fiery holiness because of his wall of protection and that's why then the exhortation comes in verse 6 up up flee from the land of the north and get to this city that's what god's saying the land of the north the uh, the 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 um, places of, of babylon where they've been exiled to get out from the world and get to the city of god leave the city of man get to the city of god that's what the exhortation is here because zion is the only place that is actually safe there were people in Zechariah's day who, though they mourned the fact that, you know, the Jerusalem of a bygone generation had crumbled, nevertheless had just kind of um, succumbed to, to the new normal. This is just what it is now. I, I, yeah, sure, I miss my homeland. I miss the glory days of David and Solomon. But, well, this is, this is life for me now here as... as a, um, uh, one living in exile in Babylon. Why, why fight it? Might as well get used to life here. And yet, the charge to God's people here in Zechariah and in any day and age, including our own, is to get uncomfortable with the world so that you up, up, flee to the city of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 reminds us of the imperative that's placed on all Christians at all times. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, or 2 Corinthians, excuse me, chapter 6 Verse 16, what agreement has the temple of God to do with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And as God has said, now Paul quotes from Leviticus, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. And God's command to escape the world... To flee to the city of man, that's not a, uh, a bigoted remark or comment of the world. It's actually a command of, of graciousness to his people. 
Because God is, is saying, this is where safety lies. It's with me. This command to, to flee to the land, uh, from the land of the north, escape to Zion, that's a gracious word that he gives his people. He's warning them, uh, where you are hanging out right now, it's not long for this world. So flee to Zion. Verse 11, behold, this is what he, he will do to the nations. I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. Things seem like they're going really well for Babylon right now. Like they're on top of the world, but I'm going to reverse it such that uh, they will be servants to their servants. They will become plunder for their slaves. The nations that have dealt cruelly with God's people will receive a just punishment, even to the point where they're brought to their knees before their own slaves. That's what God will do to the world. He'll level it. And why does he do it? Why? does he do it? There's an interesting line at the end of verse 8. It's because of us. What does it say? For he who touches you, that is Israel, touches the apple of his eye. As we know that phrase, it, it sort of means, you know, uh, it's a term of endearment. Uh, the apple of one's eye is, is that which they love more than anything else. That is certainly true of God's love for his people, as we've already seen. But it's likely uh, what's happening here is, is probably not so much a description of affection as anatomy. Uh, a trans- better translation would probably be the, the pupil of his eye. Have you ever get something stuck in your eye? A little tiny piece of dust? It hurts, doesn't it? Um, my wife is really gifted at, at just attracting all kinds of particles into her eyes, and it just, she's out. Um, it's such a sensitive area of the body that if that is harmed, the whole body feels it. And that's what God's saying here. This is no small thing to me if you harm Israel. You touch them, you're touching me. You're going after me. And that's a scary thing to go after Almighty God. To harm Israel is to attempt to harm God, and that will be met with punishment. The city of man is not going to last. It will meet the fire of God's wrath. And so we flee to the city of God, which is protected by his holiness. Now, of course, as Zechariah is receiving this vision, I think what is most astounding to him is what we started with, and that is the fact that this city is not going to have any walls. Uh, John's vision of the heavenly city in Revelation, is also marked just as much by what is missing as by what is uh, present. If you want to, we can turn now to Revelation and chapter 21. 21 through the beginning of 22 is, is a vision of this new Jerusalem. And you'll note... There are a number of times where, where John makes mention of what is absent, what's missing from this city. We start in verse um, 22 of chapter 21. And I saw no temple. 
in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Verse 23, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Verse 27, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Uh, Jumping over to verse 3 of chapter 22, no longer will there be in it anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. And verse 5, something else that's missing, and night will be no more. And they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. There's no uh, temple, there's no sun, there's no moon, there's no night, there's no need of lamp, there's nothing accursed. In all of these instances, the explanation for why certain things are missing has to do with the presence of something else, or better, someone else. It has to do with the fact that God is there. There's no temple because its temple is the Lord. There's no sun or moon or light because the Lord God is its light. There is nothing sinful or cursed because the throne of God and of the Lamb is there. And that is the same reason we saw that there are no walls in Zechariah's vision because God will be to her a wall of fire. And friends, this this culminates to bring us to this most important aspect of this coming city, the city of God, the thing that makes it so wonderful, so blessed, so we could even say bizarre, so different from anything we know, is because God lives there. Because he's there. Because it's his dwelling place. Literally. Actually. The most important thing about this city is that it is truly the city of God And that's driven home time and again in Zechariah chapter 2. We saw in verse 5, I will be the glory in her midst. Or verses 10 through 12, sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord on that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst. And you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. This is where we're headed. We all need that reminder tonight. Uh, you, have a, you have come out of a difficult week in the world. Uh, you've been discouraged by uh, the headlines. You've been discouraged by interactions in your family or with uh, friends. Work has been difficult and This coming week is going to be more of the same in that respect. And you need to know and you need to believe that this is where you're headed. The city of God, where God dwells. And if God's there, all those things that that bring you down in life won't be there. Including your own sin. What a thought to live with God. And... And not, not just because we belong to the right club or we have the right pedigree, we're born into the right family. This is the gift that God gives to any and everybody. Many nations shall join themselves. We have a rightful claim to this city, friends, even though we're Gentiles by birth. God, God has uh, blown out the boundaries of the covenant just as those walls will not be uh, built in the new city. God welcomes sinful creatures of the dust like us 
into the transformative wonder of getting to live with him and to see him. If you're still in Revelation 22, you see it there in verse 4. They will see his face. Do you long for that? Do you look forward to that? To seeing God? Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. The sin and and even the distance that separate us from beholding Christ in all of his splendor, it will be removed and we will be changed. We will be made like him, for we shall see him as he is. 1 John 3, 2. The theologians have sometimes referred to this as the beatific vision. Literally, think beatitude. Uh, the vision that makes us happy. That makes us glad. What will make heaven such a happy place isn't so much the stuff. Uh, the, the, the sinlessness, the... Um, no tears, the no pain, the no death, the forever bit. No, what makes heaven so happy is that it's spent with God. And that's why we have all of the blessed stuff. Because he's there. You make him glad with the joy of your presence, Psalm 21.6. The joy of your presence, not your presence with a T-S. Your presence, he's right there. That's what makes the Christian glad. And isn't it an amazing thing to know that to live with God, God didn't simply kick open the front door and say, you're, you're welcome. Come on in. Maybe you have friends like that. Uh, people that, you know, you can just waltz in the front door and, and they'll welcome you. You don't need to knock. You feel at home. That's a nice thing. That's a, that's a blessed thing. But here's the reality with God. He could leave the door unlocked. He could leave it wide open. And you and I, in our sin, would never, ever enter. We wouldn't want to. We would have no desire to. And so God does not just leave the door unlocked. He doesn't just leave it open. He leaves his home and he comes and he finds us and he takes us back with him to where we truly belong. The place that will make us glad, but that place that in our sin we have no desire for. And he says, no, this is where you belong. This is your forever home and it's with me. And I don't care if I have to go and find you and bring you to it myself. I will make sure you get here. And that's what he does. He makes that journey in the person of Jesus Christ. He goes from the heights of heaven to the depths of hell to make sure that you go home with him in eternity. And that's why Zechariah concludes this vision by saying, Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. This is what the Lord has done. And what's your response? Zechariah is giving us the proper response. It's to be still, to be silent. I, I think... There's, there's a, a sense in which we could read this and read it with a flavor of, of terror. Be silent before the Lord, you know, the God of the universe, the Lord of hosts. 
He has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Maybe you get a picture of like, you know, uh, smog, the dragon uh, being awoken from his slumber and, and coming out to get whoever dared disturb his sleep. But that's not the idea here. Zechariah is saying not to, to be quiet because he might hear you. He's saying, be silent and sit with this thought for a moment. Let this sink in. Reflect on this. That God loves you so much, he would leave the comforts of his own home to bring you there with him. Be silent and and think on this, that the God of heaven and earth is moving from heaven to earth. Not to get you, not to punish you, not to judge you, but to live with you. That's the hope of the new heavens and the new earth. But I want to conclude tonight by reminding you that it's something that we get to experience even now in the church We've been toggling back and forth between two visions. There's Zechariah's vision of the city of God and, and John's vision of the city of God. If we only had Zechariah's, we would think, like many of the Israelites believed, that this city was going to be constructed uh, in the present, in the here and now, in their lifetime, or at least in the near future for their descendants to enjoy. John's vision teaches us that what Zechariah saw is truly, ultimately, fundamentally fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth. But if we stop at John's vision, we'll miss out on the fact that there is an aspect of that reality that we experience even now in small but significant ways. Because that new Jerusalem that John and Zechariah both saw has begun now in the church. We Think of, think of what we, we discussed about this city. There's a city... Uh, that is expansive. It's a city of, of utmost safety. It's a city where God himself lives. And all of these things are true of the church. We belong to an invisible, universal church that cannot be numbered. Uh, Paul writes, Galatians 3, There's neither Jew nor Greek, uh, slave nor free. There's no male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, you are Abram's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. That's true of all who believe. Uh, we are guarded by the preserving power of God. Uh, his, his wall of, of, of fiery glory and holiness surrounds us even now such that none ever fall away who truly believe. And we even have the indwelling of God's Holy Spirit in our hearts. Again, Second Corinthians 6 says that we are the temple of God. Right now we are. And all of this is because God roused himself from his holy dwelling, came to earth in the incarnation, lived a life of service, defeated death, and with the authority of heaven and earth given to him after his resurrection, he constituted a new Jerusalem, a new city, a new people, even, the church. New people. We are the ones who experience in a small way right now the blessings of this holy city, even as we gather tonight for worship. That's what we're a part of. And most importantly, we are those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, whose, whose names are on the rolls of, of that city to come, whose citizenship, as Paul tells us in Philippians, is in heaven. We belong to the city whose 
builder and founder is God, we belong to the city that cannot be measured, the city that cannot be conquered, the city that cannot be shaken. That's the hope of the Christian. And if you're not a believer tonight, my word to you is the very same as Zechariah's. Flee to Zion. Escape this world which is passing away. Flee. Flee to the city of which John heard it declared, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Our Father, we thank you for your gracious word to us and the hope that it fills our hearts with. Thank you for the picture of heaven that we're given and the reminder that even before you have placed us in heaven, you have placed heaven amongst us in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, in our community, in fellowship through the church. We thank you that if we believe in you, we belong to you and we will live with you forever. Amen.